Right, a, a little over 40 years ago, 1976, uh, Francis Schaeffer, who is seen there on the overhead, uh, wrote a, a very influential book entitled, How Should We Then Live? And the subtitle of the book was The Rise and Decline of, of Western Thought and Culture. And, and the book is basically a, a survey of Western civilization, beginning with ancient Rome, um, and then continuing on through the Middle Ages to the Renaissance and the Reformation, the Enlightenment up until today. And um, as he surveyed these eras of history, he, he was really focused his attention upon the the philosophic, scientific, and religious ideas that, that dominate that dominate each era of history, because he believes, rightly so, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Right? Ideas turn into actions. Listen to what Francis Schaeffer wrote. He said this, There's a flow to history and culture. This flow is rooted as its wellspring in the thoughts of people. People are unique in the inner life of the mind. And what they are in their thought world determines how they act. And so he, he traced through these different civilizations. He saw the, the things that, that helped cause it to rise, and he caused some of the things that caused it to downfall. And then, then he said, well, how should we live in light of all these ideologies, in light of these sorts of things today? Because he knew that, that the way we think affects the way we live. And what's true of civilizations and cultures is every bit as true as the sanctifying work of God in our heart. How we think in great measure determines how we act. My message this morning, stealing from Francis Schaeffer, is this, how should we then live? Because really that is the question that Paul asks of our text this morning. So we've been working our way through Romans, and we've come this morning to the end of Romans chapter 5. So if you would take your Bibles, now would be a good time to open them to the end of Romans chapter 5. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, page 942 in your pew Bibles will we'll get you there. And we're going to look at the last two verses of chapter 5 and the first four verses of chapter 6. Now, the reason I'm doing that is because I want us to bridge this transition. It's a transition from one chapter to another. But more than that, it's really a transition from two different uh, sections in the book of Romans. If you remember, we outlined the, the book of Romans with these words. Well, let's make them bigger there for you older folk, right? Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, security, sovereignty, and service. Sin was the first part of the book. After a half a chapter of introduction, he begins by addressing sin with these words. Chapter 1, verse 18. You can turn it right back right there. We're going to kind of just survey to catch where we've been right up here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him, ask God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish heart was darkened. In other words, God made himself known to everyone through the creation. All are accountable to the Lord because they all know the Lord. If you look there in verse 21, this is astonishing. Although they knew God, they did not honor him, as God, or, or give thanks Everybody alive knows God in some way or shape or form. 
knows about him, and verse 21 says even knows him. And yet, people turn away from God. And those who turn away from him are under his wrath. And the reality, though, by the way, is that all of us, left to ourselves, we all turn away. Look at chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is true of the, the pagan, animistic, African. That is true of the cultured Christian externally. Jew talk, Paul talked about those who were pagans, who were without the Old Testament. And he talked about the Jews, and he talked about the moralists. Everyone, every one of us has turned, turned aside. We've all gone astray. And the picture Paul paints could not have been any darker. None righteous. None who understands. None seeks for God. None does good. Not even one. Do you, do you, get, the, do you get the picture? That's like zero. Okay. That's none. None of us. But I say this, as dark as our sin is, so bright shines our salvation. The hinge turns, chapter 3, verse 21. We saw in chapter 1, verse 18, about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven. But now we see the righteousness of God being revealed, being manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And here's, here's the righteousness of God, verse 22 of chapter 3. The righteousness of God... Through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 23 is a, is a summary of sin, right? We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but, but we all, through faith, are justified by his grace as a gift, and that is the good news of the gospel. Yes, we have sinned. And we're not denying that, but God in his grace is greater than our sin. And when we believe, God counts it, reckons it to our account as righteousness. And I say this is so contrary to what we naturally believe. I mean, we, we believe that we, we earn everything, right? We, we work for what we get. If you work, you'll be paid. If you don't work, you won't be paid. It's not the way it is with God in our salvation. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but it's what is due, right? Because we earn it. But, verse 5, chapter 4, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, our salvation is such that there is nothing that we can do. As strong as Paul was in chapter 3 about saying none is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one. I would say there is no work, there is no religious thing you do, there is no act of devotion, there is nothing you do to be made right with God, to earn your salvation. It comes by a free gift through faith. We simply need to believe, simply, simply trust in Christ. Not in our own works. Salvation comes to us by grace through faith. If, if you're looking for some, some handles, chapter 4 all speaks about faith. And our faith towards God and His righteousness comes down to us. Chapter 5 has been focused more upon God's grace. That's how it begins. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, tying over the end of chapter 4, summarizing chapter 4, since therefore this our justification comes by faith, here it is, going forward. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access 
by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope. We stand before God only by grace. Years I spent in vanity and pride, daring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. Burden there my burden soul found liberty at Calvary. It's all grace that comes to us. And you remember the salvation summaries of chapter 5. While we were weak and while we were sinners and while we were enemies is when Christ died for us. Verse 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were weak. We were sinful. We were God's enemies. We were resisting him. We got our, our gloves up ready to punch him. And he in his grace overcomes and simply by faith. And, and I tell you, it, it cannot be more simple than that. Just by faith, trusting in Christ, we are made righteous in him. And, and what makes it difficult is that's so hard to believe. Like we want to do something, right? We want to merit something. But over and over, Paul is saying it's only by grace through faith. And the past two weeks, we've been looking at Romans five twelve and following which speaks about two men who did two acts and had two results. You have Adam's sin brought death to mankind, and the, the, the sacrifice of Christ brings life to mankind. And those of us who believed have gone from death to life. All have died in Adam, and those who believe, the many, are made righteous in Jesus. That's what verse 18 says. Therefore, as through one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so the one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. First, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And and there you see our, our connection with Adam. That Adam, in his sin, when he sinned, we sinned with him. It brought condemnation to us. And so Jesus, when he was righteous, we have a, and we'll see this in chapter 6, developed more. We have a union with Jesus. We have died with Jesus, been crucified with him, been raised with him. So that Christ, when he died, we in some sense died with him, were made righteous in him. Adam is our representative. He sinned and brought death. Christ is our representative. He was righteous and we received life through him. So we come now to our, our text, verse twenty. And 21 of chapter 5. And um, these verses close out the salvation portion of Romans. And in chapter 6 we begin our sanctification section. Now one thing though I want to point out here. And this is really important. Is that there's a connection between salvation and sanctification. And the connection is sanctification, salvation and then sanctification. You cannot flip those the other way. Salvation is how we're made right with God, and sanctification is the process by which we continually are made holy and walking rightly towards God. And you need to say that first you are saved, and then you are sanctified in our lives. In other words, right, it's, it's through our faith that God declares us righteous and saves us. And then we respond in love towards Him in walking in sanctified ways, becoming more and more like Jesus practically. 
Now, there are two aspects of sanctification. One, sanctification is instantaneous, where all our sins are wiped away. Right? But then there's a progressive sanctification. And Paul's talking about this progressive sanctification, this, this walking with Christ and becoming closer and closer to him. And I just tell you this, be honest, too often people mess up the order of these words. They put sanctification first and then salvation they think they need to pursue sanctification first. And, and, and then when God sees how good they are, then God will save them. Just even in prayer meetings, someone mentioned just praying for someone as the gospel is being shared with them. And they think that, that they need to be sanctified before they can be saved. And, and you can't do that. It's totally wrong. That order leads to damnation. The biblical way is just the opposite. It's by grace through faith that God forgives us our sin. He justifies us in his sight through the blood of Jesus. And our response is to grow in Christ-likeness. And that's what chapters 6 and 7 are all about. All about growing in Christ-likeness and walking in his ways. I just say this, church family, don't mess with the order. Salvation is... Then sanctification. Let's say it together, right? Salvation, then sanctification. Good. All right. Well, let's conclude the salvation portion by looking at chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. And we're just going to, in chapter 6, just kind of scratch the surface. We'll, we'll come back and take some of this chapter 6 next week. But here we go. Chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. I'm calling it abounding grace. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, much of this previous section, chapter 5, verse 12 and following, is dealing with Adam. Verse 20, Adam fades into the sunset, and up we come with Moses. Particularly, we're thinking about the law. Because the, the law is mentioned here in verse 20 about how the law came. We, we saw the law earlier in chapter 5 verse 13. Right, Sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted when there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. In, in other words, right, though no law was given in Genesis, people still died in Genesis. The patriarchs all died in Genesis. Okay? And, and, and you got to catch, why did people die in Genesis? It's not because they broke the Mosaic Law. Because the Mosaic Law was to come. So it's not that that law hadn't been, they didn't know about that. And if they don't know about it, God doesn't impute that law to them. In fact, they didn't die because they broke any law. They died because Adam broke the law that was given to him. That's what verse 12 says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We sinned in Adam. There's the connection there. And, and, and there are people, I tell you, who don't like that connection. They say, no, I want to stand on my own. But especially when we get into chapter 6, the whole idea of our connection with Jesus is, is crucial to our sanctification. And, and our connection with Adam brings us condemnation. But the same way we're connected with Adam, we are connected with Jesus. These two are, are very parallel, parallel. And Adam broke a law. Adam broke the Genesis 2.17 law of the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And because we, they were in solidarity with him, all those in Genesis died. But now in verse 20, we're not in Genesis anymore. We're in Exodus about when the law came. Exodus chapter 20, when the law was given through Moses to the people of Israel. And with the law... 
came an increase in trespass. Look at verse 20 again. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. And I just say this, take it to the bank. With more laws come more transgressions. So, so think about it like this, right? If, um, if the government puts up, city government, municipal government, puts up more speed limit signs, what does it mean? Drivers have more opportunities to speed. Whereas once you could drive 45 miles an hour on a road, now new speed limit signs have been posted, you only drive 30 miles an hour on the road, and, and that 15 miles an hour difference between 30 and 45 all of a sudden becomes a, an increased opportunity to sin or transgress the law. Right? More cars will cross that road will be speeding than ever before. That's how it works. More laws, more transgressions. Or think about it this way. The legislature says seatbelts must be worn. No, we do wear seatbelts or car seats. You must have car seats for children. Now, we have that, but think about the 1960s, right? No seatbelts, no car seats, flying down the road, not a problem. But now with the law, all of a sudden, that is a problem. You can have the police officer stop you. It's more opportunities to break the law. Parents, you can tell your children, hey, guys, I'm off. I've got to run an errand. I'll be back here in about an hour or so. And while I'm gone, I want you to... To clean the kitchen, I want you to vacuum the rugs, make your beds, mow the lawn, and do your homework. I'll see you soon. What have you done? You've given your children more opportunities to disobey you because you've given them more laws to obey. I mean, that's just, that's just how it works. And while the laws of the state and sometimes the laws of parents might be arbitrary or rooted in God or, or, or whatever, the law of God is entirely different. It is God's moral compass of how it is that we ought to live. But rather than leading to salvation, by the way, the the law just leads to despair. In chapter 3, verse 20, it says this, By the works of a law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You're not going to be justified before God by doing the works of a law. So so what's the purpose? What does the law do? Through the law, Romans 3.20, comes the knowledge of sin. You learn about sin through the law. You, you learn about what you do wrong through the law. You don't receive the law and seek then to work and do everything according to the law to be saved. See, because it's when you hear and understand what the Lord requires of you, right, you begin to see how you fail in those ways. It's interesting that, that in, in this regard, Paul had a, a love-hate relationship with the law. On the one hand, he would have affirm how good the law was, and on the other hand, he, he, he hated the law because it exposed his own sinfulness. So turn over to chapter 7. We'll, we'll look at this in future weeks to come, but just look at this love-hate relationship that Paul has with the law. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So he hated this law because as he once was alive apart from the law, the commandment came and 
And sin then stirred in him through the commandment, became alive, caused him to sin, and then he died. But he affirms how good it is. Verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so he battles, right? The, the law is good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? So by no means, it was sin producing death in me through that which is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sinful. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am what? I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. And so when Paul interacted with the law, it was that tenth commandment that got him. I mean, he said in Philippians chapter 3 verse 6 that according to the law, I was blameless. Until he heard that tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Which is an internal commandment. He's like, oh, I do covet. Oh, I began to see how much I covet, how much I want. He began to see through the commandment how sinful he really was. And when he gained the knowledge of the Ten Commandment, it produced in him a knowledge of sin. That which wasn't sin to him before, before the commandment came, I was alive. But the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. He said one of those verses in verse 9. By the way, it's interesting. Did you notice the very purpose of the law? This is exactly the purpose of the law. Look at, look at chapter 5, verse 20 again. Now the law came the law came in to increase the trespass. You might translate this, the, the law came in in order that trespass would increase. Or, to be more clear, you might say the law came in with the purpose that trespass would increase. See, when God gave the Mosaic Law, it was never a means of salvation. He, he didn't give this and say, okay, you're going to be saved by this law. On the contrary, it was given for the purpose the people would see their sin and actually become more sinful than they ever had been before. Now, lest you begin to charge God with, with evil doing, look at how Paul finishes verse 20. The law came in... In order to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And see, that's where I get my point, abounding grace. Ryan, we sung great songs today, right? The songs we sang today, can you remember? What's the song we sang today? Amazing Grace, we ended with that song. What's another song? Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord. Other songs? Your grace is enough. Grace that is greater than our sin. Just the abounding nature of grace. This image comes to mind. I think about Superman. Because you can translate verse 20 this. Now, the law came in order to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace superabounded. This is like the picture of grace. right? Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a powerful locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings a single bound. It's a word. It's a plane. It's... Superman, the super abounding grace of God. So in other words, this: when a parent says, clean the kitchen, vacuum the rugs, make your beds, mow the lawn, finish your homework. You know what, parents, you've just given yourself an opportunity to super abound in grace towards them when they fail. To help your children do it, to do it for them. Super abounding grace, because the more the laws come the more there is an opportunity in grace to superabound in those things. Because whatever detriment the law was, in increasing sin, grace more 
than made up for it. That's the idea here. Grace, so remember last week we talked about Adam just plunged the human race into sin. And Christ not only just brings it back to zero, but brings it far beyond. And that's what grace does. In the case of a law, increasing transgression was an opportunity to put God's grace-giving nature on display. And rather than condemning, he forgave in grace. And when sin increases, opportunity for God to show exactly how deep his grace is, which is deep. In fact, we will never exhaust the grace of God in our lives. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed. On all who believe. We sang last week, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll of the sky contain the whole. Though stretched from sky to sky. And the love of God is the grace of God corresponds there, just God's goodness to us. And that is what God's grace is. When when sin increased, grace abounds all the more. It's like the widow's jar of oil in 2 Kings 4, when she just kept pouring it out and pouring it out and pouring it out, pouring it out miraculously, and it never dried up until all the debts were paid. You know, it's like the sun that, that never ceases to bring its life-giving heat and and light to earth. It's like the hole in the sand that the children at the lake dig. Right? Once they get down below, below sea level, below, below the level of the lake, they, they can bail all that they want, and that water is just going to keep filling that hole. That is such a picture of the, the grace of God. As Ray Ortland Jr. writes, When I repent of the very worst sin that I will ever commit, I will not find that I have gone beyond the depth of his mercy. No pit of my sin can go deeper than his grace. That's what verse 20 is talking about. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that is the the grace of God. I love this illustration from Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian came to the home of the interpreter. Pilgrim's Progress. I'm I'm tied here. Okay. So Pilgrim's Progress. Second most read book, English language, apart from the Bible. He's the house of the interpreter. And uh, interpreter took him by the hand and led Christian into a place where the fire was burning against the wall. And one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it. Yet did the fire burn higher and hotter. Christian said, what does this mean? The interp- well, what means this? Okay. And the interpreter said, this fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. He that casts water upon it to extinguish and put it out is the devil. Or we might think about sin, right? Trying to, trying to quench it. But in that thou seest the fire notwithstanding burn higher and hotter, thou shalt also see the reason for that. So he had him about to the back side of the wall. We saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand, which he also did continually cast, but secretly into the fire. Then said Christian, what means this? And the interpreter answered, this is Christ, who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart, by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, 
The souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. That's to teach thee that it's hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is exactly maintained in the, in the soul. That's not exactly what we're talking about, but the whole picture of, of just the, the trying to quench the fire with sin on the one side and yet oil being provided on the back side to, to, to go. It's grace. It's grace. That's the picture here. That's how superabounding goes. That's why I called it abounding grace. That's how Paul ends chapter 5. He says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, our sin brings us to death, but God's grace is greater still. It brings us to life. But again, like last week, right? it doesn't just bring us to life. It brings us beyond that to eternal life. Verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading not just to life, but to eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And see, that's where grace abounds, not just returning us to where we are, but going beyond. God's grace doesn't allow us just to live again. It grants us to live Forever, And I say, that is amazing. That is God's amazing, abounding grace. And then comes the question. Chapter 6, verse 1. How should we then live? In light of this grace, how should we live? Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There's the question. What then, right? This mounting, abundant grace, how is it then that that we should live? Now, I just say this. Anytime that Paul asks a question, you you need to stop and think, why did Paul ask that question? And if you can understand the logic of why Paul might ask that question, then it shows that you've understood what has come before. And it understands that we understand then that we're interpreting Paul correctly. And it's it's also instructed to see here how he answers the question. Because in answering the question, he can clarify our question. How, how it is we understand. Like how he answers the question also gives insight into this. So here's the background of Paul's question. Right? He just presented us with the marvelous grace of God in Christ as being so free and so vast and so limitless and super abounding in such an easy way. This isn't hard, okay? This is faith alone. It's like the, the best in the world, right? I got to do is just believe and you win the lottery, basically. Right? It's not a chance. It's a, I believe and God pours out his abundant grace upon us. That's what chapter 5 is about. And God, here it is presented. And so the question comes, right? What, what, what question would you have? Well, if it's so free and it's so easy, does it even matter how we live? Isn't that the question that comes to mind? Though that's exactly the question that Paul raises. And and that is the sort of logic that ought to come into our mind to understand Paul rightly. We say that that if everything's been going to be forgiven... And we know that God's grace will abound to us. And we know that the abounding of God's grace is even more to his glory than... Why not just sin um, on purpose? 
intentionally, greatly, so that we enjoy His grace. I mean, who doesn't like grace? Grace is good for us. Grace magnifies the character of God. That would be a, a, a wonderful thing. And, and what does Paul say? Chapter 6, verse 2, by no means. Now, I, I love how other translators translate the Greek. Meganoito is what the, the Greek is. Here, here's our other, right? The, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, absolutely not. You are not to continue in sin that grace may abound. The New American Standard says, may it never be. The King James, God forbid. The New King James, certainly not. Then Eugene Peterson, well, I should hope not. Or to put it in the vernacular, no way Jose is how you might want to say that. Notice how Paul answers. This is very interesting because it's insightful how he doesn't answer. He says, by no means. Absolutely not. May it never be. God forbid. Certainly not. No way, Jose. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, so what's instructive here is how Paul didn't answer that question. Because Paul could have clarified what he said and said, oh, everything I said about the superbounding grace of God, well, you know what, maybe it does have a little limit. Like, like he could have said this, Romans 6, 2, right? So we continue in sin that grace may abound. By no means, don't you know that your salvation rests partially on what you do? So walking in sin is bad because it, it's partially there. Or he didn't say, by no means, don't you know that faith and works bring you to salvation? How important your works are there? Or he could have said, by no means, don't you know that there's a limit to God's grace? But he didn't say any of that. He, he understands that we, we came to a right logical conclusion that says that God's grace is, is unconditional, is there for all who believe, irrespective of the way we live. But Paul then answers this, pointing us to our union with Christ says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Just as we joined Adam in his sin, so we joined Jesus in his righteousness. And we have died to sin as Christ has. How can we live in it? And, and verses 3 and 4 speak more about that. Do you not know, here's the union of Christ. Look, look here at the, the union language. And I'm going to get more talk about baptism next week. We're going to kind of surface it right here this morning, right? But do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. That is, we were joined with him in our baptism into his death. We have a union there. And he says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What you have there is you have our union with Christ that we have been buried with him into his death, like baptism, right? being submerged, being dunked, being washed. We've been baptized in it so that we might re-raise with him coming up out of the water. Right? We too might walk in newness of life. And here's my second point. I know I haven't given it yet, but here's the whole point. Is that we have newness of life. You might even say this, abounding grace leads to newness of life. Right there at the end of verse 4, right? That we too might walk in newness of life. And, and notice that Paul in no way pulls back anything he says from chapters 3, 4, and 5 about salvation. He stands on everything that he said 
gift by grace through faith comes to us freely and abundantly apart from our works. So you say, how how, how can we understand this? Well, the, the best way is this, right? How can he who died to sin still live in it? Like, in other words, he's saying this, that, that there's something that happens when you believe and trust in Christ, you die to your sin. And if you have died to your sin, how in the world can you still live in it? And the answer is, you can't. If you've died, you, you, can't, you can't live that way. So if someone is living this way and is, is living a sinful life, so grace may abound, what you can say is this. Well, it may just be that they haven't died to sin because they're not. They're not walking in that way. Or, or you might say it like this way, that, that grace changes us. That, that the overwhelming grace of God transforms our hearts and our affections before the Lord in every way. It's as if you, you had a, a friend, an acquaintance, if you will, who just dropped a million dollars in your lap and just said, friend, here you go. What's going to happen to your mind? What's going to happen to your affections toward that friend? There's going to be a love towards him. And, and then as he directs you and instructs you, maybe what you should do with that money that you've been given or, or what you should do now, I think you'd be all ears. Like, oh, give me a million dollars. He's not commanding you, but you say, okay, well, do this. You're like, okay, absolutely. Right? How, how, how can he who've received this great gift not respond to the giver of that gift? I think it's, it's grace changes us. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says? It's a fighter verse from a couple weeks ago that we've been working on. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new has come. Right? And being in Christ means that we have a, have a new life. It means that we, we live differently. It means that we don't live in our former dead ways. But notice why it is. It's not because we need to mess with our salvation, chapters 4 and 5. It's really what flows out of our salvation. It's how we live as a result of that. We were just in prayer meeting this morning talking about Galatians chapter 5. By the way, you're all invited to prayer meeting would love to see it. We had probably 40 people there today. Would love to see that be about 80 or 90. So that's just, I just put that there for you. Galatians, right? So we're looking at Galatians 5, 23 and 24 is uh, the fruit of the Spirit. 22 and 23, rather, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and, and self-control. But, but listen to some of these pa- verses. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh and these things are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do another right right grace changes you transforms you and puts the spirit's desire in you at war against the desires of the flesh shall we sin that grace may abound well god is transforming you He's uniting you with Christ, and you'll have a different heart and a different way to live. And, and the, even Paul even brings up in Galatians 5.24, he brings up this union idea. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Right? We're crucified with Jesus, is what that says. There's this union with Jesus. that Just like we had a union with Adam, so also we have a union with Jesus as well. In fact, I just want to kind of continue on with, with chapter 6 just to show you the, the union that we have with Jesus. You, you remember when 
In chapter 5, Paul basically said the same thing over and over and over and over again, that, that Adam did one act, led to one result, and Jesus did one act, led to one result. Well, so he's going to say the same thing again, like, but this time, how united we are to Christ. Look at verse 5 and following. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, there's union, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, a death and a resurrection, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him, right? When Jesus was crucified, our old self was crucified there as well. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. It says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, right? So there's this union, this, this joining together with Christ. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And just as Jesus died a death to sin, and the life he lives, he lives to God, so also, chapter 6, verse 11, the very first commandment in all of Romans, so you also must... Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see that union there, that that joining there. And just as Christ experienced these things, so we also, by grace, are brought into union with Jesus. And that brings its own implications about what salvation is and how sanctification works its way out. It's It's not a myriad of laws and commands coming upon us. It is a, a transformed heart. I mean, that's what Galatians 5.22 says, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. See, it's not the law coming down upon us. It's Christ transforming us, uniting us with Christ, giving new affections and new desires and new passions to live what is right, not to continue in sin, presuming upon the grace of God. Well, here's just a just a... First step, first baby step into this whole idea of sanctification, which we'll be in for the next couple of weeks or so as we work our way through chapter 6 and chapter 7. I'm really excited about it because Paul's going to talk about the real battle that says, I want to do something, but I have a different desire in my flesh and I can't quite do it. How then is that? And if you've been a Christian in any long period of time, you know what that's about. There's much here to teach us that we might learn from. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you um, for Jesus and for his grace. I pray, God, that you would help us just as we seek to understand these difficult things. How is it that we've been crucified? How is it that we have died to sin? How is it that we have been buried with Jesus? How is it that we are raised up with Jesus? What does this union look like? Father, I know this is a difficult passage. But I pray that we might see the simplicity, God, that we saw in Romans chapter 5, is that we're united with Christ. What he did, we do. And so help us. I would pray also for us at church, even as we prayed this morning, would pray that our, our interactions with one another would be typified by the fruit of the Spirit. That, that our, our lives um, would be such that we would walk in a sanctified way, uh, um, God, that is a a way more pleasing to you and more righteous every day. God, just walking closer and closer with Jesus. Not because in any way it depends on our salvation, God, but because it flows from our salvation, God, to, to know you and to love you. 
And Father, would pray for our families as well, that that would be the interaction between husbands and wives. God, just continuing to be more and more God-focused and God-centered and God-glorifying, that that would impact the children of the church as well, to grow up, to stand on our shoulders, to to live for the glory of Jesus. And so help us, O oh God, in these confusing things, this text. But may we always remember, O oh God, that as grace abounds, it leads us to a, a newness of life. God, not a, a sinful life. Father, I also pray for our breakfast here today. Uh, Father, may it be a blessed time. May the ladies feel honored and cherished. We thank you for them. I uh, just thank you for what you do through them how they they help and serve in so many quiet, behind-the-scenes way. May today they feel honored and feel special. God, we thank you for this day. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.